Father, we pray for forgiveness for our nearsightedness. We can't see what you're doing. We can't see the work you have going on in us. And if we truly knew, we would surrender. And I pray that this morning we would offer our whole selves to you. You satisfy. You're everything that we need. Please show us that you are enough for us. In your heavenly name I pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. Speaking of surrender, Gateway has the privilege of supporting a woman who went to the DR 10 years ago on a short-term mission trip, and while she was there, she felt like God was tugging on her heart and asking her to spend a year in the DR. So she spent a year down there, and during that year, the Lord captured her heart fuller and deeper, and she decided to surrender her life in the United States, she was a school teacher living in Massachusetts, and moved to the DR and worked in a village down there of uh, sort of underprivileged, unnoticed, unrecognized peoples. Well, over the years, Gateway has supported her financially, and also we've been able to take trips to the DR periodically, just about every summer. We went this past summer, and this was part of the crew that went with us. I went as well, so thank you guys for praying for me because I had to put up with this. And the person who kind of organized and led the trip for us was Lyle. Lyle, thank you. Well, we had a great time. It was a privilege to be able to go down there and experience the experiences we had as a team and with Ina. I think you asked Terry and John if they would share a couple of insights with us, Lyle, so take it away. Okay. okay. So, Terry, we've been on a missionary trip together before. So, it seemed like you had kind of a special time. Why don't you talk about what led you and your initial struggles and that kind of stuff. For me, uh, the main part of this trip happened before we left. It started when Ed sent an email asking for myself and another person to volunteer to do the curriculum for this particular trip. And I thought, mm, no, I've done this, been there. No, thank you. <laughs> Honestly, that was what went through my head. And I'm thinking, mm, I don't want this. Well, as it turns out, the other person couldn't do it. And I knew that God was saying to me from the minute I read the email that I was supposed to go. But I had a Pause lot of... Pause there for a second, Terry. Mm-hmm. The next set of slides you'll see are the activities, what we did while we were there. We essentially ran... This, of course, was one of the weird characters that we <laughs> created. But we ran a, a vacation Bible school for a group of kids that she had signed up that she's been working with, and Terry organized and planned that uh, vacation Bible school for us. I'm sorry, go ahead, Terry. So I knew then I had to listen. This was a big step of faith for me, and I've been a Christian a long time, and I have a lot of head, but sometimes my heart doesn't follow. So I knew God wanted me to go on this trip, so when I said to Ed, okay, I'm going to do this, I knew that I had made the right decision, but... It was a long walk for me to get there because I had a lot of reasons I didn't want to go. You know, my health. You know, I I had some things that I really felt were impeding me. And and I am a planner and a control freak. So the biggest thing for me is I like to know what's going to happen. So my biggest takeaway from this trip was that, you know, I followed God's will for me. I obeyed what I knew in my heart he wanted me to do. And he made everything just more than awesome for me. When we did our first meeting together, 
we all had to write a letter, you know, to God and say, okay, Lord, this is what I need from you. And mine was brutally honest because I do this a lot in my personal life. You know, dear God, you know I don't want to go. So this is what I need from you. Please, please, please. You know, I need energy. I need no fear. I need you to be with me. I need to know that I am doing what you need me to do. And I laid it all out. It was a huge letter. So the week before I left, my blood pressure skyrocketed. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, Lord, I'm going on this trip. You've told me. Um, so I went to my doctor, and I said, I'm going on this trip. He told me. <laughs> so the doctor said, okay, we'll just see what we can do. And the day before I left, he said, go and have fun. And I said, okay, I'm going. Well, the minute, minute that I got on that airplane, it was like God was right underneath me and underneath that plane. And he stayed there with me the whole time. And it's a feeling like I've never had in my life. And continually through the whole week, things would happen, you know. And it would be like, okay, what's God going to do with this? That's an Ina phrase. Let's see what God's going to do with this. And God always did amazing things. I just felt like through, you know, rainstorms, mud puddles, you know, not feeling secure. You know, you're in guarded compounds, things like that. I mean, the whole week, it was just, there was no fear. I was calm. I felt good. I had energy. So two weeks ago, I got my letter back. And I'm reading it, and Jamie's bringing it over my shoulder, and she's going, Mom, Mom. Every single thing I asked for in that letter, God did. Every single thing. He made it concise. He made it the flow from the week before and the people, the, the camaraderie. Everything that happened, he made us cohesive. There were so many things I asked for in that letter, and there wasn't one thing God didn't do. And so my big takeaway is, and for me, this is a big one because I have a lot of head, but my heart wasn't, isn't always there. I don't know what the future is going to bring, but when I am obedient to God in particular, he knows what the future is. And for me, this was just such a feeling of knowing that God knew where I was supposed to be and had me there. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, I was there, and I, it was really awesome to witness. Let me just say that. Before and after. <laughs> he saw me in the first trip and the second trip. It wasn't that bad, no. <laughs> okay, John, um, we talked about Ina. Mm -hmm. So do you, can you just sh share a little about Ina and Circadio? It's kind of hard to put into words, Ina. <laughs> she surrendered. Talk about surrender. She is someone who is absolutely sold out to God. Her focus in life is to reach the kids in that little village that, this third world country has intentionally forgotten about. Her sole focus in life is to reach those kids and love on those kids. For the past, golly, long time, she's been facing some major league health issues. Finally had to have her thyroid removed, dealing with chemo and treatments from that. And when the thyroid's gone, you're just... just Everything's just all over the place, and you feel terrible. To see Ina with those kids, and basically we were in four or five what we would call a carport, but that was basically the little buildings we worked in in this vacation Bible school. To see Ina barely able to stand up and had to lean on a table because she's so exhausted, but there was a smile on her face, and she was excited about talking to those kids about Jesus and about what God did. It was stunning to see her in action. It kind of made me feel like 
what in the world's holding me back? I mean, I got so, I'm blessed with so much here, and I have such a relatively easy life here. And, you know, what in the world am I doing? <laughs> well, Lyle, as I said, thanks for organizing it and taking us. How was it for you? Well, it makes me think the Great Commission is all about going to the world, and I think that is obviously what we're supposed to be doing. The less obvious thing is what we get out of it ourselves. Mm. So I, I did it, a fair amount of work to organize and do all this stuff, but I think the person that got the most out of it was me. Mm. I just enjoyed the group. I enjoyed Ina. I en- enjoyed Trigadillo. I enjoyed everything. It is such a spiritual high to be able to go there and learn new avenues of obedience and to see life outside of our culture and see what other people are like. I'm just wondering, Lyle, this might be a tough question to answer, but would you recommend that others take a trip like this? Well, that's the thing. We'd love to do this again, but we need, you know, participation. I would strongly urge the congregation to give this a thought. It is simply awesome. Amen. Okay, so that comes as a recommendation to all of you, by the way. I think you've also put together a couple of videos. We shot some, they're not high quality, but we shot some cell phone video clips while we're there, and you've put together three or four of those? Uh, Okay, so let's run those if you would, Will, and um, just give you a feel and a flavor for what we did while we were in the DR. Just landed in the DR, had an easy flight, and now we're all here, me, the missionary, and my friends. Okay. Okay, that last song, we're copywriting. We wrote that, those sophisticated lyrics. That's the sum total of the Spanish that our... Actually, we had a couple of people that uh, spoke Spanish that were on our trip. So if you speak Spanish or if you don't, you're qualified to go this year with us to the DR. I have to say that it was an outstanding trip for me. I, you know, I got to spend time with my goofy son, Jordan, and the time with the, the group was great. My favorite part of the trip was on the way home. 
On the way home, actually on the flight down and on the flight back, I don't know how this happened, I guess this was Jordan's arrangement, I got to sit next to Kevin Bellino, and airplane seats are small, and I'm tall, and Kevin is big, so this is not a good combination. And on the way home, we fly out at like 6 in the morning, and we have to leave Ina's at 2.30 to get to the airport in time, so we just stay up all night. So as you can imagine, that flight home is wonderful, and I spend the whole time, you know, going like one of those, you've done that before. But I notice, we haven't slept all night, and, uh, you know, I'd sleep for five minutes, and then I would wake up, and I notice sitting beside me, Kevin is furiously typing away on his phone, and I thought, my goodness, that's a long text to your mother, Kevin. Anyway, so this is a long time. And after a while, we get within earshot of New York. We were flying into JFK. We get within earshot of New York, and Kevin hands me his phone. And I start reading and weeping. It's Kevin's story. So I want you to share it. Well, here it goes. (laughs) I wrote it all down. It's kind of long. It's a brief version, but still long. My childhood was a very blessed one. I never had to go without anything. My parents were great providers. However, as they met all my physical needs, they were struggling with more trials than any parent should have to. My older brother, TJ, died not long before I was born. So my parents must have been ecstatic to have a large, healthy baby boy to bring home from the hospital. But I can't imagine there wasn't also pain in the back of their mind, as it is impossible to look at your healthy son and not think of the one you just lost. A little over a year later, they tried again and had my little brother, Dustin. But Dustin was stillborn. Another year went by, and I had my little sister, Allison, who was born and immediately needed medical attention. Allison held on to life for eight hours before she died. After Allison's death, my father got a job in the Washington, D.C. area, and we moved from California to the East Coast. I was almost four. While living in Northern Virginia, my parents again had to face the nightmare of another premature child. My little sister was born in Fairfax, which was a blessing, as Fairfax Hospital had a very advanced newborn ICU unit. And even though we couldn't bring my sister home for a while, she was the first one of my siblings I got to see come home. You all know her as Katie. She's the smartest person I've ever met in my life. I don't have any memories from childhood, good or bad, which I can only assume is my brain coping with the pain of these early years. So far into my story, I'm four. My parents were obviously depressed and extremely overprotective of Katie and I, which I believe plays a small part in my life story, where I never consider the negative consequences of many of my behaviors as I'd been swooped up at the first sign of danger throughout my early life. The story has to jump forward a bit, as I don't have any personal memories before eighth grade. At this point in my life, I wrote the same sentence twice. (laughs) (laughs) At this point in your life, you wrote the same sentence twice? Of course. (laughs) I wrote this on a phone. (laughs) At this point in my life, I have a... Strong knowledge of the death of my siblings, but I don't have any knowledge of my personal reactions. My grandmother is a grief counselor, and she published a book, How We Grieve, which is a book about grief through the eyes of a child. Unfortunately, I'm the main character in this book and the case study on how we as humans grieve. So I'm an eighth grader reading this book about myself for the first time in my life, exposing myself to the pain of my siblings' deaths instead of just the knowledge. I couldn't handle it and turned to alcohol and pot to numb the pain and make it through each day. At this time, I was regularly attending church, and when asked, would have told you that I was a Christian. After all, I had all the knowledge from growing up in the Catholic Church 
we'd now been going to this weird church called Gateway where people would actually show emotion. But I was simply going through the motions and using the youth group as a way to escape the house when I was grounded, which was most of the time. However, after going through the motions for a while, I began to feel that there was more to this religion than memorization. I found myself becoming somewhat of a leader to the younger members of the youth group, and I realized I had to change my life if I wanted to actually accept God. Then we went to New Orleans on a mission trip, and for the first time, I felt God pulling at my heart, and it was overwhelming. I knew I had finally found what my dad and Pastor Ed had talked about all these years. I was baptized on this trip in the Gulf of Mexico. The next year or so went great. I stopped drinking and doing drugs, and I started going to church because I wanted to, not just because I was trying to get out of the house. Then my father was selected to become an elder, and as part of that, he had to give his full testimony in front of the whole congregation. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) I was a little worried about this because I knew it would bring up pain for my youth, but I didn't know the half of it. The Friday night before my dad was going to give his testimony, he sat me and my sister down to tell us a few things about his testimony that we didn't already know. At this point, I'm 16 and Katie is 12. During our early years in Northern Virginia, my father had two affairs. The timeline fits to right after the death of my siblings. I felt a rage that I had never felt before. How could he hurt my mother so much at a time when she was already experiencing so much pain? I didn't handle this revelation well, and being selfish, I quickly turned back to drugs and alcohol. For a long time, I held a lot of resentment towards my father. How could he hurt my mother like that? How could he tell a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old something like this? Why was my mom still with him? The hardest part of this, though, has been watching my sister deal with my dad. I do not think she trusts him to this day. I blame my dad for hurting my family, and I blame the church for making him tell my sister before she was old enough to handle it. I blame the church for my pain, and the pain my sister was feeling, and dove headfirst back into my patterns of sin. I was overly promiscuous and would do just about any substance on earth to escape the pain and have fun for a little while. This continued through high school and became worse when I went to college at WVU, which was the number one party school at the time. Hmm. I bounced around from parties and girlfriends for a while, and I thought I had my life under control. I couldn't have been further from the truth. And then in my junior year, I woke up to a text from my best friend telling me that he had brutally murdered his roommate. I'll be able to recite that text for the rest of my life. In this text, he said that he knew his actions would forever change his life and mine as well, and he was right. Dealing with the pain and confusion of this action, I dove deeper into sin and slowly stopped liking the person I was. During my struggle with this, one of my friends decided to commit suicide and slit his wrists. His roommate called me to come help him clean up, and watching the pain he and his roommate were dealing with wasn't very easy. My biggest fear in life is losing another person I care about, so this was not an easy task. A few months later, my dad invited me on this men's group mission trip to the Dominican Republic. At the time, I no longer considered myself a Christian, but I thought it would be fun to head to a tropical island, so I agreed to go. On this trip, I saw true poverty for the first time in my life, and I saw a community in turmoil. But somehow, the people there seemed much happier than I was. At the time, I didn't consider it an action of God, but I saw it as a community working together. So I turned to the men's group and became actively involved in their conversations, And through that, I learned a lot about my father and began to repair our relationship. After the trip, I went back to WVU in my life of partying, but the life now felt empty and I wanted more. Unfortunately, I kept looking for it the wrong places, but then I caught wind of another trip to the Dominican and I decided I would go. Less than a week before the trip, I got arrested for driving under the influence and spent a night in jail. When I got out of jail, I felt broken and thought my life was over. My brokenness, I laid on my bed and just wanted it all to end. 
Then we went to the Dominican, and the lesson we were teaching the kids about was Peter while he was imprisoned. Kind of ironic. <laughs> I had no idea we were going to talk about this. But in a week's time, I'd gone from waking up in jail feeling broken and helpless to waking up in a tropical paradise teaching kids about how you're never hopeless if you have God on your side. The lesson I was using was about jail, the very place I'd just realized how broken I was. <clears throat> jail didn't break me. Jail simply exposed many wounds and sins and bad habits and self-destructive choices that had been occurring for years. So at this point, I'm writing back to World Grace Missions from Circa Dio, and I feel like I've hit rock bottom, but I've found hope again in Jesus. But now I'm wondering how I can be useful for God. Then we get back to the compound, and Mrs. Allen and Ina introduced me to some missionaries who were planting fish farms in impoverished areas. But they didn't really know anything about fish or farming. At this time, I was earning a degree in agriculture and specializing in fish farming. <laughs> so I decided I'd give them a hand. The sequence of events God gave me were too specific and rapid for me not to know it was him speaking to me. I had gone from rock bottom to finding my purpose in a five-day time period. And then we returned to the States, and I slowly became flat again. This time, though, I didn't dive headfirst into sin. I just seemed to slowly forget about God and everything he'd done for me. Then about a year and a half later, last Christmas, a pastor had mentioned another Dominican trip to me, this one, over Christmas dinner, and I didn't hesitate to tell him on the spot that I was going. Then we headed to the Dominican with this group, and I headed in blind because of my lack of attendance at pre-trip meetings. Unlike Terry, I'm zero head, 100% heart. <laughs> we got there, and I wasn't sure what my part was to play or why exactly I'd been there. Now I can say that using zoombre and animals and everything to teach the kids things was God's not-so-subtle way of reminding me that I need to get back on this passion for animals and agriculture and feed the hungry people both physically and spiritually. At the time I wrote this, I didn't know what I was going to do with that, but that brings me to my next one. <laughs> this is a text I wrote to Pastor Ed like a week after getting back from the Dominican. I just wanted to share some good news with you. I'm currently setting up an experimental fish farm in my dad's garage so I can test the feasibility of running a fish farm in Circadio with zero financial input after purchasing land and digging a pond. I'm using blue tilapia, which are also known as St. Peter's fish, as they are the most prolific fish in the Sea of Galilee, and supposedly the fish that Peter caught when Jesus had him cast his net over again. But on top of being loosely linked to the Bible, they are also one of the hardiest fish species alive, can thrive in a wide range of pH, salinity, and temperature. On top of all that, if you remember my testimony, the story of Peter in prison has a lot to do with me coming back to the church. I'm also wondering if God ruined my career goals so that I would end up in this landscaping job where I've learned how to operate heavy machinery and all the skills needed to dig a big pond. I feel that again in my life, everything is lining up in front of me with too many coincidences to not be God. So I'm doing these experiments because I want to know it will work before I tell Ina about it. So don't tell Ina about it. <laughs> but if this works in my garage and then it works in Circadio, I don't see why we couldn't start a ministry and expand it to other communities, training missionaries how to farm fish, and then planting them in communities to spread the word and feed the poor. So I asked if you could pray about it and if we could talk about it at some point. But here's the potential start of St. Peter's International Fish Farm and Missions Project. Saving souls by filling bellies. I know what God's people said. So I, I, I feel like I've already come up with uh, Kevin's slogan, St. Peter's International Fish Farm. It's a spiffy ministry. 
St. Peter's International SPIFF. Peace of the Lord be with you. Why don't you stand and pass Christ's peace to one another? Okay, so good morning, Gateway. This is uh, John Malella. Most of you know him. If you're visiting, <laughs> that is just obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> I see nothing wrong with it, actually. <laughs> okay, so John, we're running long. We so quickly, John Malella, what's your story? Short, right? Short. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Real short. Okay, real short. Born in Brooklyn. That's in New York. Um, <laughs> ba- back in the day, though, before that was the, the center of the hipster universe, back when it was the hood, moved to Queens, also part of New York, grew up in a small town of two million people. Uh, I'm the third of, of four boys, four parents, only had boys. Grew up nominally Catholic. That meant maybe church on Christmas, maybe. Yeah, not a whole lot of God in the, in the early years. So I need to fast forward because we don't have a lot of time. My older brother met Jesus sometime when he was in high school. He's two years older than me. And that was kind of freaky for the family. The parents thought he was involved in a cult. And I didn't know what to think of it. I kind of, I remember saying that I believe all the things that my brother believes, except I don't like to show it. That was my exact words. Well, little did I know that a few years after saying that, Jesus invaded my life. The best way to describe it is um, he just brought me to a place where, what Kevin was talking about, a place of, of emptiness. And, you know, I tried to fill it with many different things, and nothing worked. Nothing worked. So Jesus captured me, captured me, captivated me, and I was never the same after that. And soon after that, I remember people would talk to me, and I would, I don't know. I mean, those of you that know, that have, have gifts, you know, and you all have gifts, you probably know that most of the times you don't even know what you have until other people point it out to you. I think that's usually the case. And, you know, sometime after really getting captured by Jesus, people would talk to me and say, you know, you have, it seems like God wants to do something with your life. Well, I think he wants to do something with all of our lives. But teaching and leading, yeah, it seemed like that was a good fit for me. Well, soon after meeting Jesus, I also met a fantastic woman who's sitting right there. So can we have a hand for my (laughs) wife there? So, yeah, we're on, what, 24 and a half years it's been? Yeah. Okay, and three kids later. Hold on. I also met a fantastic woman. Can we... All right, it's on. <laughs> so, three kids later, got a job working for the government for the customs service. And, of course, what happened in, in uh, September 11th, everything changed. And customs opened up a new center down here. And a friend of mine, I was working at JFK at the time, said, you need to come down and check it out. So we actually did. And I remember we were going to be down here for three months in 2003 on a temporary detail. And we wanted to go to church. You know, we wanted to find a church. And a friend of ours was just surfing the web and said, why don't you try this gateway place? So we were like, well, okay, it's only for three months. You know, we could check it out. And we just never left. (laughs) Yeah, okay. This is one of those clapping days. So when we came back in 2004, it was a natural thing that we would continue here and do that. 
soon after that, we got involved in the small group business, leading a small group. And it seemed that to a bunch of us that God is doing something out in the Herndon, Sterling, Chantilly, Centerville area. God wants to do something out there and transplant some of that great stuff that we heard today and transplant it out there. The great thing about your story, John, like so many of us, you got captured by Jesus and it completely changed the trajectory of your life. Rock me. And you began to feel, pretty early on, you began to wonder, am I supposed to do something with this in the way of communicating, uh, leading, teaching, perhaps pastoring? Right. And that has never left. No, I can't get rid of that. I've tried to. (laughs) I can't get rid of it. So John has been noodling on this for probably 10 years. Gateway has wondered if we should try to multiply this somewhere. And so for the last several months, you've been meeting with folks who are to the east, our our folks that live in Herndon, Sterling, Centerville, Chantilly area, been meeting on Friday nights, gathering, wondering if God's going to do something. Right. So we started about six months ago, I think we were talking about this, of, of gathering the, the, uh, the small groups that meet in the, in the east, east of 28, and get them together in a house and do church, do worship and do a small teaching and do prayer, and we're calling it right now Gateway East. Not extremely creative as a name, <laughs> but it seems like it works. And just seeing what God's doing with that, and God seems to be meeting us as we get together. So it's time for us now to think about turning this dream into a plan. So that's what will be happening over the weeks and months. And it's a, really a perfect time for us. We've got nothing else going on except building a gigantic <laughs> building over here. So God has a way of, uh, we, we surrender to his timing and his work. So let me pray for you, John, and thanks. for this. And uh, yeah, thanks. Well, thank you so much for John, and thank you for capturing his heart and invading him. And thank you for his act of surrender over the years. Acts of surrender. Daily attempts at surrender. Thank you for the times that he gets it right, and thank you for the times that he struggles and he falls on you. Father, we pray specifically for your dream for our church, this church, these churches. God, we pray that you would raise up the right people and the right plans and the right timing for whatever you have for us. We pray, Lord, that you would anoint this and continue to bless and work through John and those that are with him and helping this right now. We lift it all to you, Lord, in surrender. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you, John. Well, all of this sets me up for what we want to talk about today. We're week five into a series of messages we're calling What's Your Story? And so I hope today will be, for those of you who've been tracking with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for a number of years, I'm hoping today will be a reminder to you. For some of you, you've never really come to the point of surrender that Kevin was talking about or that John was talking about or that we talked about with Ina. And I hope today will pique your interest and your curiosity toward that end. I've got a lot to say today about this uh, aspect, or let's say this theme of our, all of our stories. 
So I've actually got a script because I was afraid we'd be a little long, so I'm going to fly. So buckle your seatbelts. We're talking about kind of one of the main themes of all of our stories today. I'm going to begin with a poem. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds me and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Many of you will no doubt recognize this poem. It's called Invictus. It was written by the late 19th century poet William Ernest Henley. Honestly, I think it's kind of a robbery that this poem was written by a Brit because I believe it represents the national anthem of the American soul. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. No matter what the circumstances or shade, as Henley puts it, I will be unafraid. This can do, no matter the circumstances, full speed ahead attitude is buried deep in the American psyche. We celebrate it in our songs, our movies, our stories. Think Rocky. Think anything with John Wayne or a young Clint Eastwood. The lone hero overcoming all odds. I think our national hero isn't Lady Liberty or Lady Justice or the Pilgrims. I think our national hero is the self-made man. And those of us who have captured a piece of the American dream, think all of us who live in wealthy northern Virginia suburbs, we've been served a heaping portion of the soup of this myth, and we have drained our cups dry. We've cheered for Rocky, we've worked hard and long, we've been the captain of our souls, and we've charted a pretty successful course for ourselves, and that applies almost equally to those of us who are foreign-born. This week I found a website called The Art of Manliness. (laughs) Now, let's acknowledge that it's 2015, so I'm not trying to denigrate the self-made women among us. These days, there are just as many of you, and we are just as admiring of you. But back to the website, The Art of Manliness. They have a post on this site called The 25 Greatest Self-Made Men. Listen to what this post says. The idea of the self-made man is inextricably tied up with that of the American dream. It's his image that has lured thousands of immigrants to our shores, all hoping for a chance to turn a handful of beans into a vast fortune. The self-made man is he who comes from unpromising circumstances, who's not born into privilege and wealth, and yet by his own efforts and by pulling himself up by his bootstraps, manages to become a great success in life. The self-made man harnesses and utilizes the most important masculine qualities, (laughs) hard work, perseverance, and most of all, personal responsibility. Again, it's 2015, I know. I'm reading from a website. The story of the self-made man embodies the goal of every man to become the captain of his own destiny. While no man is an island, it's not external help or special relationships that make the crucial difference in the self-made man's rise. Instead, self-made men throughout history have made their own way in life by reaching deep inside themselves and through willpower and elbow grease, creating their own destiny. Then the post draws up a list of great self-made men. This is a very interesting list. I don't want to go through it all, but let me just read you a few of them. Benjamin Franklin, Ross Perot, John D. Rockefeller, Ralph Lauren, Frederick Douglass, Ray Kroc, Harry Reid, 
I don't know how he made it on this. Thomas Edison, Larry Ellison, Abraham Lincoln, Clarence Thomas, Sam Walton. Now, these are great men, no doubt. They overcame great obstacles with great grit and great determination and very hard work. But this post and the articles and books and movies and songs like it, they belie the reality that the self-made man or woman is an untrue myth. And it's unchristian. Certainly hard work and determination are great qualities. But no one is a self-made man or woman. And more importantly, the attempt to be so is harmful to our emotional, relational, and spiritual health. This cannot be the goal of our lives. In fact, if we're going to honor God, we have to reject this myth and its influence on our teaching and our thinking. So if that's not the goal... If we aren't supposed to set our internal compass toward putting our goals in sight and stealing our resolve and making things happen, if that's not the way we're supposed to orient ourselves, then how are we supposed to orient ourselves? This morning I want us to listen to the story of the ancient prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah has much to tell us about how we should really orient ourselves. We're going to read the opening of Jeremiah and the beginning of his story. And then I've got, they won't all be on the screen, but I'm I'm going to flip through lots of passages from Jeremiah as we look at how Jeremiah oriented himself and how he encouraged us to orient ourselves. And if you would, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. And we're going to read Jeremiah chapter 1, the opening of Jeremiah. He gives a little of his own personal story, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 1 of Jeremiah. And this is awesome. First of all, he orients himself in time and space because all of us are oriented in time and space. He says, the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anothoth, which was 30, 40 miles outside of Jerusalem. It was a place where a, a large priestly family lived. Jeremiah evidently came from. The word of the Lord came to me in the 30th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reigns of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born... I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. You may be seated. So this is Jeremiah's account of his epic encounter with God that he had when he was probably around 20 years old. And here's what Jeremiah tells us that God told him. I formed you. I knew you. And the word knew carries with it the implication of being chosen. I formed you. I chose you. I set you apart. I appointed you. I put my words in your mouth. For your part, Jeremiah... 
You must go wherever I send you and say whatever I command you to say. In other words, for your part, Jeremiah, you are to surrender to me and to act according to my commands. This is how you are to set your internal compass, Jeremiah. If you want to truly be successful, if you want to live in concert with your design, if you want to have life that's long and purposeful and full of meaning, then you will set your sights on following me. You will surrender to me and act according to my commands. That will be your internal compass. Both through his recounting of his own story and through his teaching, Jeremiah tells us that this is how God wants us to order our lives. This is how we set our internal compass. Not toward grit and goal and self-attainment, but toward surrender. Jeremiah lived in a tumultuous time in history. He was a prophet to the nation of Israel during the 6th century B.C. Now, geographically, Israel was positioned between two superpowers of the day, Babylon and Egypt. Babylon was the ascendant power throughout this century, the one before and the one after. And they were constantly exercising their muscles by taking territories and whole peoples throughout the ancient Near East. Babylon lay to the north and slightly to the east of Israel. And Egypt lay to the south and to the west. And Egypt had already seen its heyday, but it was still a power to be reckoned with. Now, prophets of Jeremiah's day, you need to know, would have been part preacher, part court advisor, and part CNN or Fox News analyst. And Jeremiah's analysis was not promising for Israel's future. And it was very unpopular. Beginning probably in his early 20s, Jeremiah began denouncing Israel's idolatry and its rejection of Yahweh God. And this was coupled with a prediction of impending doom and destruction. You're going to have to pay the bill for your years of disregarding God, Jeremiah began to say. And this made Jeremiah a wildly unpopular person in and around Jerusalem. Chapter 1, verse 14, God tells Jeremiah, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all people who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdom. And consistently, this is peppered throughout the first 20 chapters of Jeremiah, a warning of Disaster coming from the north, specifically, of course, Babylon. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, God says through Jeremiah, Flee for safety, people of Benjamin. Flee from Jerusalem. Sound the trumpet in Tekoa. Raise the signal over Beth Hakarim. For disaster looms out of the north, even terrible destruction. I'm going to destroy daughter Zion, so beautiful and delicate. You are not going to be spared. Josiah was the king of Israel during Jeremiah's youth. And Josiah was a deeply religious king. He had been intent on drawing Israel back to wholehearted worship of Yahweh God. So Jeremiah enjoyed some favor in court during the reign of Josiah. But over time, even during Josiah's reign, he grew increasingly unpopular in priestly and prophetic circles and even on the street. And after Josiah's death, genuine and at times fierce persecution was unleashed against Jeremiah because he no longer had a protector in the court. By the way, Jeremiah would end up delivering this same message, this same unpopular message, for over 40 years. And he was largely alone in his analysis. All of the other JNN analysts, and that's the Jerusalem News Network, they were mostly predicting peace and prosperity. Good times will come. God's going to protect us. 
And when tensions arose from the north, the talking heads of Jerusalem usually advised the rulers of Israel to make treaties with Egypt, suggesting that they could hide under the Babylonians under Egyptian protection. Jeremiah consistently cried out against such advice. He advocated returning to God and and relying solely on Him, even if that meant taking some bad medicine at the hands of the Babylonians, because it's coming, people, Jeremiah said. Think about how ironic it is that Israel's prophets were advising an alliance with Egypt. Egypt had been the place of Israel's greatest historic shame, the place of her slavery. I want you to listen to what God says through Jeremiah in chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 6 through 11 of chapter 11. The Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. Listen to the terms of this covenant. Follow them from the time I brought your forefathers up from Egypt until today. I warned them again and again, saying, Obey me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So I brought on them all the curses of the covenant I had commanded them to follow, but they did not keep. Then the Lord said to me, there's a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those in Jerusalem. They've returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. They cry out to me, I will not listen to them. You begin to get a sense of why Jeremiah was increasingly unpopular. In other words, any plan you come up with Unless it involves surrender and obedience, it will not work. And God will ultimately punish it. Jeremiah consistently warned against going to Egypt for help. This, Jeremiah warned, is a false, self-made plan that will have a decidedly bad ending. We need to return to God wholeheartedly, Jeremiah cried, and place our lives and our future in His hands, whatever that may be. Later in his ministry, Jeremiah has this surprising warning, really, for Israel and and for Egypt. Chapter 25 of Jeremiah, he says this. This is what the Lord, the God of, I'm reading verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I am sending among them. By the way, parentheses, Babylon is coming. And it's my hand that's doing it. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and its officials to make them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn and cursing as they are today. And then the surprise, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his attendants, his officials and all his people and all the foreign peoples, they're among them. They're going to drink it as well. According to Jeremiah, God is saying even Egypt herself will not escape the hand of the Babylonian. Surrender, trust, and obey. That's our internal compass. You know, it seems to be a basic theme of all of our stories. Sometimes on a daily basis, weekly, monthly, we go through some process of saying, I'm here and I want to be there. And we spend our time calibrating plans and deciding how we're going to get from here to there. And then for some of us, what happens, we get a little religious and we think, oh, okay, what I'm supposed to do is include God in my journey from here to there, not realizing that we've gotten it wrong perhaps from the very beginning. 
We've asked the wrong starting question. Jeremiah seems to be saying that our story should be, I'm here, God, where do you want me to go? Perhaps this is just a theme for the prophet Jeremiah. Perhaps God has placed some extraordinarily special calling on Jeremiah that doesn't apply to the rest of us in our story. Perhaps Jeremiah was was expected to exhibit some saint-like level of surrender that's just plain undoable for the rest of us. But if that's so, we have to ignore Jeremiah's entire ministry because he's advocating the same kind of life and the same kind of posture for all of his listeners. I don't have time to go through some of these passages where he's calling on the people to do exactly this. Jeremiah's entire ministry is the proclamation of that the people of Israel have turned away from surrendering to God. They've turned to their own way and the way of God's around them. And so God is going to turn away from them. Because they should have followed him and obeyed him and trusted in him and surrendered. Look, if we believe this message is only for Jeremiah, then we're going to have to ignore the entire book of Psalms. Because throughout the Psalms, we're told to wait on the Lord and how blessed it is to wait on the Lord. And what they mean by waiting on the Lord, they mean wait on Him. They mean say, God, I'm here. Where do you want me to go? Psalm 81, 11 through 14 says, But my people would not listen. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow and obey my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. And if we're going to believe that this message is only for Jeremiah, then we've got to ignore the teaching of our Savior. Jesus in John 14, 23 and 24 says this, Anyone who loves me will obey me and my teaching. Look, my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. In other words, if we have a surrender and an obedience problem, we have a love problem. We claim to love God, as Jeremiah says, they claim with their lips, but their hearts betray it. We claim to love God, but we don't. If we don't surrender and obey, if that's not the internal compass of our lives, if we want to truly be successful, if we want to live in concert with how we were designed, if we want to have the life we long to have, if we want to live with meaning and purpose, then we will set our sights on following God. We will surrender and act according to what He says. If you're a Christ follower today, I'm hoping that this is a reminder of square one. This is where you and I set. This is where you and I start. So let's recalibrate today. This is where we start. I surrender all. If you've never fully surrendered, then today may be the day to begin. Because it's the only way to live in concert with who and what you were designed to be. All right, before we end today, I want to say three important things about doing this way of life. So what you need to remember from today is surrender and do as he says. Let's add some color. Let's say three quick things about this way of setting our internal compass, just so we get a reality check. Number one, this is not easy. It's not as if Jeremiah surrenders to God and then his life is constantly up and to the right. And things just go well and they just get better and better. Jeremiah faced opposition, criticism, and even persecution virtually his entire adult life. I want you to listen. I was going to skip over this, but I'm not going to. I want you to listen to Jeremiah's complaint in Jeremiah chapter 12. I've told people and myself often when somebody comes to me and they're just in really dark straits, and some of you are this morning. I've said to folks consistently over the years, look, you're in good company. 
You're not in a good place, but you're in good company. This is what Jeremiah says pretty early in his ministry, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You are always righteous, O Lord. I'd love to have heard his heart and the attitude of his heart when he says this. He follows. You're always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet, I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? The Jerusalem News Network analysts are getting huge ratings, and I'm constantly berated. I'm even persecuted. What? Why do the faithless live at ease? He just bought a new house. And I've got a tent, and barely, they throw rocks at it. You've planted them, and they've taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You're always on their lips, but you're far from their hearts. Yet you know, O Lord, you see, you test my thoughts about you. Then I want you to listen later in his life. Jeremiah's complaint turns to despair. And I need to read this for you this morning. There's a middle section of this beautiful passage where Jeremiah praises God because he's like the rest of us. In Jeremiah's story, he was often schizophrenic, recognizing on the one hand that God was to be glorified, and on the other hand, how in the world am I here? I want you to hear Jeremiah's despair. As the complaint of the prophet sours in his own heart, he says this, Oh Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. How could I not be your God? You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Chapter 20 I'm in. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I'm not going to mention him or speak anymore in his name, I'm done. His words in my heart like fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in and I can't. I hear many whispering, oh, terror on every side. They were mocking him. There's a con- violence and destruction. There goes Jeremiah, old Mr. Violence and Destruction. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived, then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. It gets worse, beginning in verse 14. Cursed be the day I was born. I wish I'd never been born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Listen to how bad it gets. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning a battle cry. I mean, he's, he's railing on the guy just for bringing news that he, he was born to his father. Jeremiah's story did not run in a straight, easy line. It was a life filled with difficult chapters and jagged edges. Did Jeremiah at times make his own a struggle tougher? Perhaps he may have been thrown off by an overreaching desire to be well-received and honored. He may have had an overly sensitive spirit. Some scholars have suggested that Jeremiah struggled with depression, so maybe his temperament worked against him. Whatever the case, it's clear that there were whole chapters of Jeremiah's story that are filled with struggle and heartache. It was not easy. And yet there are no indications that Jeremiah ever left the path of surrender. He continued to surrender and to obey. And in the end, he was completely vindicated. He was right. 
It was Jeremiah's vision and Jeremiah's word that eventually came true and protected part of Israel. And all the more popular Jerusalem News Network analysts are now forgotten along with their advice because Jeremiah surrendered and obeyed. It's not easy, number one. Number two, this way of doing life is true. This is just reality. It's not easy, but it's true. The life of surrender to God is a life lived in sync with the way things really are. We don't control things. Not really. And we know it. I know we often feel like we have control, but really we know we don't. That's what's real. We don't control our birth. We don't control our death. We don't control our health. We exercise influence over our health, but we don't control it. We don't control our schedules even. We don't control traffic or flat tires or the schedules of others which infringe on our schedules. We exercise influence over our schedules, but we don't control them. We don't control our loved ones. We can't guarantee their safety. We can't even guarantee their lives. Loved ones get sick and die, and there's nothing we can do about it. We exercise great influence over how much money we make, but in the end we all realize this has very little to do with who we are or even how happy we are. Honestly, it just doesn't mean that much. We make decisions all day long, but we don't control the outcomes of those decisions. And at some point in life, we all learn that these decisions really amount to rearranging our circumstances, and they end up exercising very little real control over anything that really matters. Wow, Ed, we're really depressed now. But the conclusion of all this is not some kind of fatalism. God isn't suggesting that hard work and grit don't matter. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit. Proverbs 21.25 says, The sluggard's craving will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. I could go on and on. We must make plans. We must act. We must choose. We can't simply give up because we don't exercise ultimate control over anything. God requires that we act, that we participate with him in his work, in his world. And we know we must act, but the prevailing theme of our lives cannot be striving to make things happen. We can't put our trust in setting our own goals, stealing our resolve, and seeing those goals through to the end. These are admirable activities, but they fall underneath the prevailing theme of surrender and obedience. And if those other activities are allowed to take the lead in our lives, then we become dangerous to ourselves and to our relationships. Third, This is why Christians over the centuries have learned to practice a devotional life. This is why we do it. This is why we learn to pray and to read the Bible. First of all, because through prayer and Bible study, we are reminded constantly of the need to surrender and obey, to wait on God and to follow. And secondly, through prayer and Bible study, we train ourselves to hear God's voice and His commands. Is it easy? No, but it's worth it. And you wake up in the morning, you and I, we wake up every morning and prove how consistently we lean into one way of doing life or the other. We wake up and we don't have time to really spend time with God. We're too busy. You're too busy not to spend time with God. You've got too much going on. You're about to create a train wreck if you're not going in the direction that God wants you to go. You and I don't say, I'm here, I want to be there, how do I get from here to there? No, we say, I'm here, this is where life is right now, where do you want me to go, God? And we learn to do that every day, on our knees. 
We said a moment ago that Jeremiah may have been thrown off by an overreaching desire to be honored or well-received. Or he may have been thrown off by his own overly sensitive spirit or maybe by a depressed temperament. What tends to throw you off? What are the circumstances that urge you toward taking control of things and striving and worrying and fretting? What gets you to that place? What are the times in your life when you end up relying on yourself and your own plans? And how's that working out for you? We're going to spend a minute doing some work with God. Asking Him where and what we need to surrender. What are the triggers for us? What are the times? What are the circumstances? What arrangement of things into which are we most likely to grab hold of some kind of control? What are the circumstances during which we're most likely to say, I'm here and I desperately want to be there because being there I'm going to be happier. I'm sure of it. So how do I get from here to there? Okay, A, B, C, D, E. Awesome. Okay, God, that's what I'm going to do. Hope you bless it. What are the circumstances under which we're most likely to make that the theme of our lives? Let's stand together. Let's pray. God, it it feels to me like we are people who are really not very likely to surrender unless it's at the end of a sword. So that's why you break our lives, break our hearts. That's why you put us in jail. It's your attempt to beg us to live according to our design. Father, there are those of us here this morning who have never really begun with you. We might have even done religion, but we've never really surrendered. I ask in the name of Jesus that today would be the day of freedom. Many others of us, Lord have been back and forth with this exercise for a long, long time. And we need to be reminded today that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it's our privilege to do it willingly now. Hear us, Lord, as we surrender specific things, as we surrender to you, specific activities, specific attitudes, specific circumstances, something at work or our finances or something in our heart or our temperament or something in our family. Lord, we surrender. We do know where we are, pretty much. But we confess to to you this morning, we don't even know where we need to be. You alone know. You alone are enough. We need you. So hear us this morning with that cry. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find. Without you, I fall apart. 
You're the one that guides my Holiness is Christ in me. 